Welcome. If you're uh, new here, special welcome to you. Glad you're here with us uh, today. Today we're going to start a new series. And maybe just to back up a few weeks uh, before Easter, we were looking at the different views of God and how we tend to view God, and, and sometimes we undervalue what who he is and what he does and some of our wrong views. And the, the title of that series was, our, our, Is Our God Too Small? We need a growing picture of who God is and embrace those views of God that are accurate and real. But the title of this series, Church Matters, and that word matters, it's really kind of a double meaning there. And so we're talking about things of the church, and, and that church does matter. I, I think that's really true. And, but we're going to take a bit of a, a similar approach, and, and like a view of God, every one of us has a, a definition of what we believe church is to be all about. And it leads, frankly, to how we live out that, the actions that we take toward a church, toward the body of Christ, we live our lives according to our beliefs. But understand, you know, we've talked about this a little bit over the years, and especially when it comes to disciple making, but here's where I want us to go and really go deeper. And so this is kind of the introduction today, but I really believe that God wants us to go deeper in an understanding of what it means to relate to each other. So over the next probably five, six weeks, we're going to look at what does it mean, what does relationships look like within the family of God, within our body of Christ. And I really believe, though, that the Scriptures has so much more to teach us about this relationships that we are called to have within a church family. And they impact so many different ways and ultimately our ability even to become followers of Christ and to make disciples as well in terms of that mission. Now, I've been reading a number of books in light of this topic here, and there's lots of authors, by the way, that are writing on this topic right now. And here's a quote from one of the books that I'm using as a source. It says this, Indeed, forming people into exceptional Christians... Persons able to model Christian faith effectively to the seekers requires forming exceptional communities. Kind of interesting way to put it. See, I think he's right on the mark there. And I believe that what God wants for us, even as Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church, is that we would become a place that would have exceptional an exceptional community of believers. You know, and I hope that no church who claims to follow Christ thinks that it's okay to be average in this area or in their relationships. And you know, even beyond that, I hope they don't think that average is okay in terms of transformation and ability to give away the gospel to the world around us. But effective disciple-making demands that we have exceptional relationships within the church family. But think first of that word church. Understand that not everyone, everyone agrees even what that is to look like. People don't agree even when we're supposed to meet together. Uh, Deanna and I did uh, adult foster care years ago when we were in Vancouver, Washington, 
And the gal that we hired on Sunday morning was a Seventh-day Baptist, okay, meaning that there was a Baptist church that actually worshipped on Saturday. That was where they believed was the best day to worship. But we all churches as well don't have the same doctrines. They don't meet at the same time. They don't sing the same songs. So all of us have these beliefs about church, and that's the challenge of it. Is how do we become? How do we get on the same page, even as a body here? For an example, let me throw our kind of a vision statement. It's on your bulletin there. I'm going to put it on the screen. It says this: "Together in Christ, making Him known." A very short phrase. That that's what we want to be about. But even that statement, people will have different beliefs about that statement. Now, as I look at that. I think maybe that second phrase, making him known, we probably have, have greater agreement on that one than I think that we have on the first one of together in Christ. See, the challenge, that first phrase, together in Christ, really is what we're talking about is relationships and how they're supposed to work out. That's a deeply relational term there. So I want to begin by going over a text this morning as the introduction, turning your Bibles to John chapter 17. This passage is actually, though, foundational when it comes to relationships within the body of believers. And it has profound, really, implications when it comes to the call in our lives to be in relationship with, with each other and what it looks like. And I hinted at this on Monday Thursday, but again, this is going to key passage. We're going to come back to this text over and over again. And, and look how it begins. I'm going to just begin in verse 8 of John 17. Now, I understand the context of this. Jesus is in the upper room. is just before he goes to the cross. So it's just hours before he's going to get arrested, and he begins to pray. And he be prays for his disciples first, and that's where we jump in here. So he's talking to his father in prayer. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those for whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. And look what he prays here, that they may be one. Even as we are one, you catch the phrase, that they may be one even as we are one. See, the the picture here again, they're, they're sitting around probably a very low table, so they're sitting on the floor on that last supper, maybe on some pillows or such. And again, this is the night before they go to the cross. And he got, guys, bow your heads. I'm going to talk to my father, and I'm going to ask him a couple things. And Father, would you help these 11 men become one? Just like you and I are one, Father. Now, do you think at that moment, if you were sitting at that lane, at that table, that you wouldn't have probably opened your eyes a bit? and looked around at some of the other disciples and and met their eyes and go, what's he talking about? 
What, what does it mean? Folks, you have to understand, these men, they had followed Jesus for over three years together already. They knew each other well. So well that they were actually arguing with each other just a few minutes earlier as to who was the greatest. But they spent time together. They had their, their own small group. They were kind of their own DNA group of, of 11 guys. But the fact that Jesus stopped and he prayed for something more than that. See, Jesus must have understood that they needed something beyond what they had currently. See, it implies that they hadn't arrived yet in this understanding of what it means to be one, just like the Father and the Son have this dynamic relationship of being one. See, he doesn't pray that they stay together and be happy after they spread out after the crucifixion, or that they keep liking each other. Now, he says, I want them to be one, just like, Father, you and me are one. Just soak that in for a second. You go, what does that really look like? But verse, in verse 20, he begins to pray beyond the disciples. He continues in his prayer, and he begins to pray for you and me, for us, for all of those that are going to receive the message. So he's, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He, he knows his time on this earth is just about gone. And he stops and he prays for us even today. Look how it reads in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, these only, that's the 11. But I also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they, us, may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. They repeats it again for emphasis, I and them and you and me, that they, look at this phrase, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He prays for his disciples. He prays for us that we would be one just as the Father and the Son are one. And I think we can assume that the Holy Spirit was a part of that as well. But becoming one That is a profound relational term. It's about a relationship through and through. Now, oftentimes we describe this in marriage. You go back to Genesis chapter 2, the two shall become one. You know, leave a father and mother and they unite, join together in this issue of oneness here. But this is not talking about marriage. This is talking about relationships within the body of Christ. The call to be relationally one. Now, now here's where, again, i got to get more theological here, and we're going to dig pretty deep on this issue of relationship over the next few weeks. But think of it this way. Before time even started, if you were to take yourself away before the universe even began, what existed? And it was this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They existed before creation, 
And the essence of that relationship was a relationship that was really dominated by this issue of love. The Father loved the Son. The Spirit was communicating this triune God. And, and i, I got to repeat what I said a few months, about a month and a half ago. I said this, creation was not needed. God didn't have to create creation. He didn't need us. He didn't need us to glorify himself. He could have existed all by himself because of the Father, Son, and the Spirit in that relationship. Everything that he needed was there. But he created creation. And one of the key pieces to that of being made in the image of God, and we're going to dig more there hopefully next week, but there's this place where he then invites us, his creation, men and women, into the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Now understand, as we come to Christ, that's really literally what's going on. Now, now understand, it doesn't make us a God. Please don't hear that. The Mormon faith actually believes that people turn into gods and are part of that Godhead. And they go, no, there's no scripture ever that gives any understanding of that. But here's the deal. This prayer of becoming one, like the Father and the Son are one, it must go beyond theory. And Or why would he have prayed for it? If it could never exist, why would he have stopped and prayed now, now, here's where I need to give some applications. And a little bit like we, we dealt with a few months ago in terms of our understanding of God. We need to understand that m- many times the learning that we've come to believe about church really is, is short, inadequate, small maybe. So I, I want to just dig about some of the views that are really kind of dysfunctional in terms of surrounding church. So these are just kind of introduction applications here for today. But the first one for your notes, I said it this way. There is a difference between a crowd and a community for churches of today. We have that word crowd, and then this idea of community, which is the root word is commune. And that's the father and the son's relationship, is communing. But too often the goal of a church is to gather a crowd, and the fact is is that crowds come and go. But deep community, oneness, communing, that Jesus prayed for in John 17, that is so significantly different than just the crowd gathered together. Remember the night before he goes to the cross. He doesn't pray that all the disciples would go out and build big churches with lots of crowds and people. No, he doesn't pray that at all. He prays, let them be one, like you and me, Father. Now, I I got a picture. I realize I didn't blow it up here. You'll have to look if you put your binoculars on there. But this is a picture of a church. And you could actually say this. This is... This is a crowd of people. Even here today, we have a small crowd of people. But here's the challenge. Many people define a church as a building with a cross. And you understand, there's a physical church that we recognize in our day and age with people in it. But even in that picture there, that that 
might be a church with a crowd, but they may or may not be characterized by oneness. We don't know. See, many people define church as a crowd listening to a sermon like we do today in a building. Many people define church as coming and singing songs with the worship team on a Sunday morning. And a crowd can be joyful, and a crowd can worship together, and even the Holy Spirit can be a part of a crowd. I remember going to the Metrodome for Promise Keepers. You know, 60, 65,000 guys singing together. And it, it was a rush. It really was. And I believe that the Holy Spirit was there. But that was a crowd. And I don't think you could define that as a group of that would be considered one. Now here's where people want to push back. Can oneness is only a theological belief. That applies to the universal church, the big church, the big C church. So becoming one really is about the macro, the, all of the believers in this world. Except, we got a problem with that. He prayed for oneness with 11 guys. 11 people he prayed that for, 11 men. That was micro. See, many people have an inadequate view that the church is only a crowd that gathers with others on Sunday morning. We come Sunday morning, we come to a building, we gather with people, we sit in rows. And if that's your only definition of church, you're missing something. And it needs to go wider than that. See, we can't settle for that definition of church only. But let me give you another flawed definition of church as well that's out there. A prominent. Number two on there, or the second bullet there. Some people view the church as a spiritual department store. And let me put a picture on the screen. There's the Tar Church. Okay, Think of that as a church where we offer goods and services. Or we work there. So it's kind of like a Target or a Walmart who provides spiritual goods and services. And we put a sign out. Everyone needs to come and choose and walk down the aisles for, for a wide array of Christian services. And we choose from the activities that you need to live out your life as an individual family or, or an individual person. So the church becomes primarily a vendor of religious services. And you understand, if the early church were to look at that, that idea, they would just shake their head and go, no, that was never their intent as in terms of the early church. Now some of you are going, come on, Ken. Don't we provide opportunities for adults and kids to be have good spiritual learning activities so discipleship can happen? And, and yes, we, we should. And we should do them well. But, but you understand, I've got to push the point here. See, you can have all of the, the good spiritual goods and the spiritual services, but it may have no connection to John 17 of becoming one with each other like the Father and the Son have oneness. See, I pray that they would be one Father, just as you and I are one, 
You can walk into a tar church and be there and work there and, and you may not be one. Let me just interject even toward parents a second here. Have you ever considered how spiritual oneness needs to be a benefit even in children? Even in children. Parents, do you realize that spiritual oneness isn't limited to just adults? It can begin to be fostered even in young kids. Now, do we want the best programs? The answer is yes. But programs, again, don't guarantee that oneness is occurring within people, between people. So does that prayer of becoming one apply to your children? I go, absolutely. Why can't they be tasting this and beginning to taste of it at a young age, which will draw them into the body of Christ even in a deeper way? It needs to grow deeper with age. But let me give you another passage here to point out another piece here in the introduction. 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me just, I'll put it on the screen here if you don't want to turn there, but this gives us some more insight into another issue here that we need to grasp. And look how it reads here. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves... Now he's talking to the church, to the body of Christ here. You are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then jump to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now let me give you an application from that passage. It's not the, the, the meaning necessarily, but there's an application here for your notes. I said it this way. The church, even a local church, is to be distinct from every other type of social organization. See, First Peter is saying, Peter's writing, the church, the people of God, are unique they're, proud, they're profoundly different from any other social entity in this world. And if that's true, this is what I think needs to happen. When we are becoming one, just like the Father and the Son, when that begins to live its way out in a church, in a group of people, Outside people that walk into that church begin to spend time with those people would be saying this, I have never experienced anything like this before. And why? It's because when the church functions in oneness, the world cannot match that ever. And part of the challenge of that is that churches of today, they walk into churches and go, oh, I can get this at this club somewhere else. But if this were to happen, I think they'd come away and go, this is different. This is weird. 
This is strange. You catch that? We need to be a people, and when oneness occurs, we need to be people that are unique, different, in a profound way that something changes and people see it. But i got to keep going here because I need to go back. I intentionally left something out in John 17. And I want to come back and put up verse 20 and 21 on the screen again. And let me reread that. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then he adds a little short addition to that prayer, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, this idea that we need to add here in verse 21, that they would be one as we are one, but he adds that they would also then, as they're in oneness, that they would be in us together. That they may be in us. And you go, what's that about? Well, we'll understand the implications of this. First of all, it's not talking about individuals here. This, the way it's written, there's a group thing here. This is about us being in Christ together. Jesus is assuming a group of people. He's assuming the church, the believers that are going to respond to the message of, of the disciples. See, we keep believing that our faith is Jesus and me. But this prayer says, no, it's Jesus and us together. We're together and we are to be in Christ together. To be in union with the triune God together. Uh, Folks, this Jesus and me stuff has got to get killed within the body of Christ. But you notice another piece of this prayer, that they may be in us, And when we're one, and we're also one together, we're together moving in Christ. See, Jesus, what what is it implying here? That when he prayed for oneness to exist with each other, and when it doesn't exist, let me say it in the negative, when it doesn't exist, then we are blocking it ourselves from being in Christ together. How the people relate together horizontally makes a difference whether we're actually in Christ together. And John understood this deeply. And matter of fact, one of the books that he wrote a little later in his ministry, 1 John, I'm gonna, let me put that on the screen. This is the application of that concept. Look at how it reads in verse 20. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if they don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? Do you understand what it's saying? If we don't have the the horizontal relationships with each other, it's blocking, and we're assuming, John's assuming, we're deceived with our relationship with God. See, that's the hardness. It's a hard thing to think about. 
But here's the dilemma, I think, that we have. People think that they can become mature, be godly, they can grow up in their faith by just knowing the facts and the doctrine or keeping a list of rules that are important or even gathering at a crowd on Sunday morning or serving in the tar church. See, they do all these things and they still believe that being one with each other is optional. And you go, no, it's not optional. See, people believe they don't need to be in union with other believers. And if you believe that, you're believing a lie. And you've bought into it. Now for some, I think there's a place where, oh yeah, I know I'm supposed to have this deep relationship with each other. But, but I think here's where they end up going. They're willing to have relationships that are average, shallow, in that context. An average and shallow relationships in a body of Christ does not equal oneness that he prayed for in John 17. I can tell you that right now. There's another truth. We're not going to unpack it today. But it's in that phrase, I think you already caught it, so that the world would know that you sent me. Recognize that our, our oneness horizontally with each other impacts our witness in the world. We'll unpack that another Sunday. But when I filter down and go, okay, what is the conclusion for today? And where do we need to start and understand as we move forward here and understand relationships even farther than maybe what we've really used to? And the main point for your notes, I said it this way, the triune God desires to transform his people. He wants to change us from the inside out. But within church communities that have oneness, that are characterized by being one, just like the Father and the Son are one. He wants transformation to take place within the context of relationships within communities and to become relationally one, just like the Father and the Son. But there's a challenge to that. And I came across a quote this week that I, I want to put on the screen. And, and here's, I think, the dilemma. He said this, Real sanctification requires a people to live together in covenantal relationships. And we're less inclined to do that than any generation in human history. I think he's right. That's the challenge, I think, for us as we move forward in this series. What does it mean to fulfill that John 17 to become one with each other with such distinctiveness that the world looks at it and says, wow, that is different, that's unique. Let me just put one more statement on the screen. I said this, effectiveness in disciple-making is impacted by our ability to be one. And, and we'll go down this path more, but when oneness occurs, guess what happens? It becomes attractive because oneness in this context, the world can't do it. They can't be one like the Father and the Son. But the Spirit has been put in us, so we have the capacity. Otherwise, why would he have prayed it? 
If we just say, oh, it's never going to happen in a church, and we kind of let it go, that's the way it is. You know, that's a defeatist attitude as a body. We got to say, okay, God, what do you want to do to change in us? To understand where we are loving each other, where it's characterized by oneness, just like the father and the son's relationship. Lots of stuff to ponder. Let's stand and pray.